what's up, Rocky Peak? How are we doing this weekend? Hey, it is good to be with you. Whether you're joining us inside the worship center, outside on the patio, or you're joining us online. Welcome to Rocky Peak this weekend, and especially if you're joining us for the very first time. And with it being baptism weekend, we know that we have some friends, some family joining us on campus or watching online. Special welcome to you. If we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Dre. I'm one of the teaching pastors here, and we're going to go into that time of teaching together right now. So as Scott invited you to, if you would open up those programs, inside you're going to find a green and white message note sheet, which is a great tool to help you follow along with this time. Great you to be able to jot down anything the Holy Spirit is prompting you specifically to remember. I'm going to pray and we're going to dive right in. <clears throat> Jesus, what a gift, whether we're here on campus or watching online, that we get to stand with our family and celebrate baptisms this weekend. What a gift that we get to watch different ages, different backgrounds, different stories declare the same King Jesus Declare your forgiveness, declare your restoration, declare your transformation. What a gift that we get to watch our brothers and sisters, whether we know them or not, declare commitment, how you're committed to us and how they're committed to you. And for all of us watching, again, whether on campus or online, let this be an opportunity for us to reflect on our commitment to you, for us to reflect on our devotion to you, let this be a time for all of us at Rocky Peak to be recommitted to listening and following to your leadership. And as we go into this time of teaching, as we open up your word, which is living and active, as I often pray the words of John the Baptist, I pray that me as a communicator would become much, much less, and that you as King Jesus, the Christ, the Lord of Lords, would become much, much more. And it's in your name, King Jesus, that we all sit. amen. Well, once again, if you're here for the very first time, and I not only want to welcome you again, but I want to take a few moments to bring you up to speed. This weekend, we're going to be continuing the series we've been in for the last several months called Signs to Path to Life. And this series has been an in-depth study in the life and teachings of Jesus, as seen through the eyes of one of his closest followers and friends, a man that we now call the Apostle John. Now, John writes his gospel as an old man near the end of his life. And what he does through his gospel is that he's accounting his firsthand eyewitness experiences with Jesus. And through that, he's inviting each and every one of us today to go on a journey with him to better understand who Jesus is, why Jesus came, and what is the true path that leads us to life. And in particular, John highlights these seven supernatural signs that Jesus does. And if you were with us last week, Michael unpacked the seventh sign, the resurrection of Jesus' friend Lazarus. And we need to start last week where we were ended last week because that's just the foundation for our time today. There in the front of your note sheet, you're going to see that one of the questions Michael asked last week was, how big is your Jesus? Do you follow a shrunk down, minimized Messiah? Or do you follow truly a massive King of Kings and Lord of Lords? 
And the reason why I want to start our time by, by going back to that question is that sets the foundation as we end John chapter 11 this weekend. We're going to see the religious leaders respond to the miracle of Lazarus, respond to all of these different signs and miracles, and we're going to see that their response is rooted in fear. And before we point any fingers at these Pharisees, at these religious leaders, we're going to see in our time today how relatable their fear is. And we're going to see that that fear deeply impacts our answer to that question. How big is your Jesus? And so with that bit of setup, I want to invite you on your note sheet. you got a section titled, The Sanhedrin Meets and if you've got your Bibles, open them up. You've got your apps, turn them on. We're going to be going to John chapter 11. We're going to be starting at verse 45. And Rocky Peak, you know me. What am I going to say? Get those pens ready. Get those highlight functions ready because we're going to make this messy this morning. So starting at verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary, again, talking about Mary, the sister of Lazarus, talking about the witnessing to this resurrection. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. Would you underline or highlight that? Believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees. Would you underline or highlight that? So we're seeing the dual reactions here. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus has done, had done. All right, let's stop right there and unpack a little bit of what's going on. And so what we've seen throughout John's gospel is that many of the signs, many of the miracles that Jesus performed resulted in a pretty sharp division in different reactions from the people that witnessed it. Some believed, some believed that he was the Messiah and others fought against it. Others fought against the message. Others fought against what this is pointing to. And we have to take a step back and understand how relatable this is to us. See, the common foundation is that Jesus shook up for them, that Jesus continues to shake up for each and every one of us today what we think we know. Jesus challenges how we see the world. Jesus challenges how we see him, how we understand what it means to be a Christ follower, how we understand what it means to obey, how we understand what it means to listen and follow. And we talked about this several weeks ago when we were together. When Jesus challenges our most passionately held beliefs, especially about him, that can at times lead to beautiful submission, but honestly, that can at times lead to fighting, can it? Because we'd prefer to fight for what we know, for what makes sense. And to be fair to some of these people going to the Pharisees, I'm sure some of them were going to tattle. But again, what frame of reference did they have for witnessing a resurrection? So I'm sure that there are many going to the religious leaders going, hey, help me process what in the world I just saw. And so as we continue... Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. 
If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Would you underline or highlight that last part? And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. And so there's two significant things we need to unpack there. The first is the Sanhedrin. They were considered, simply put, the Jewish ruling council at the time. Maybe 70 plus members, but they were the authority over what would be considered Jewish internal affairs, tradition issues, lifestyle issues, cultural issues, religious issues. Now, while they were the highest authority for the nation of Israel, for the people of Israel, they were still under Roman authority. And the reason why that is key is you hear them talking about the fact that Jesus up to this point had been a threat, a growing threat. But now because of what happened with Lazarus, Jesus has become a full-blown crisis. And we've talked about this a little bit before, that think of how extraordinary this is, that in a world without the internet, in a world without social media, with this day and age sounds kind of nice, right? That in that world, Jesus has gone viral. Everyone is talking about this rabbi, this teacher in Nazareth that is healing the blind, that is releasing demons, that is teaching with an authority they have never heard before. Coming off of Lazarus, everybody is talking about the fact the dead guy's now alive. And so the Sanhedrin gathers. And finally, we have seen the religious leaders be the antagonists often. We had seen them be the enemies, if you will. But what we are seeing so clearly in this passage is the root of why they've been so oppositional to Jesus. And it's fear. They're afraid. They're afraid of what they could lose. They're afraid of the conflict that this could bring. They're afraid of how devastating this could be to everything they have known. And Rocky Peak, I've said this many times as we've been together in this, in this series, that if you're familiar with the life of Jesus in any extent, and you're familiar with any of the religious leaders like the Pharisees, it becomes so easy to just view them as, how could you miss this? How could you have stood against Jesus and something that has been truly heartbreaking but good for breaking down my pride in this series is that when I take a step back and look and examine these religious leaders, I realize how relatable they are to me, how relatable they are to us and the temptations, particularly in fear, to fight against the will of God. And so let's unpack this fear a little bit. They were afraid that if people believed that Jesus is Messiah, meaning declared that Messiah is king, that if more and more people publicly did that, what that would do in a Roman empire in which there was one Lord and one king, and that was Caesar, is bring the full weight of Rome down on them. 
that Rome would take away their temple, take away their culture, take away their land, take away their, take away their tradition, take away their freedom, take away the limited autonomy they had. And think about the history of the people of Israel. They've been through this. They've lost their place of worship. They've lost their land. There are real scars in them. And hear me very, very clearly. There is selfishness and pride in their fear, that they're afraid of losing their power, their position, their authority. But there is also very real, relatable fear, isn't, again, to lose their freedoms, to lose their autonomy, to lose their nation, to lose their tradition, to lose their ability to practice their faith. When I put it in those aspects, I take a step back and go, wow, those are things I'm afraid of now. And the root really of this fear, because fear can still be general, is that Jesus cannot be the Messiah. That does not make any sense to me because him being Messiah would cost us everything. It would change everything that we understand about life, about how to move forward, about what to do with ourselves. And right there, with no hands raised, isn't that relatable? When you sit there with God and his will makes absolutely no sense, when you sit with the Lord and go, wait, 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 how do you wanna do things? You, you want it to get darker before it gets better? You want to... Take your sweet time right now? You want to take away what is good and what is right? You want to seemingly empower our enemies? God, that makes absolutely no sense. And it brings fear, doesn't it? And so as we continue, verse 49, then one of them named Caiaphas who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. Would you underline or highlight that entire verse? You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. He, Caiaphas, did not say this on his own. But as high priest that year, he prophesied, would you underline or highlight that word? He prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for the nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. Okay, let's stop there. This just got extraordinary. And so let's unpack this. So Caiaphas is one of the high priests, maybe the ruling high priest of the Sanhedrin at this time. And so he has a personal responsibility for the welfare, for the progress, for the stability of the Jewish people. And so he looks at this crisis that is Jesus and he speaks these words that for us, our job as the Jewish ruling council is to keep the Romans off of us. And again, make 
no mistake, they did not like the Romans, but they cared for their people. They cared for their positions. They cared for their pride. But at the best, they cared for their people. And the only way to keep them off of is to eliminate this man named Jesus. And then he says something extraordinary that John gives us an editorial comment that he says, better for Jesus to die instead of us. Better one man die for the entire nation to save the entire nation. And John writes back and goes, he has no idea what he just said. He has no idea the magnitude, the beauty, and the depth of what he just said. And doesn't that reflect the human condition? We think we know. We think we get it. We think it has to make sense to us. We think God has to make sense to us. And here he is speaking the absolute right words and completely missing what it means. And it makes me reflect on my life when I say Jesus is in control. And the truth of the matter is I can say the right words and miss what that truly means. When I say that Jesus is Lord, your will be done, I can say those right words and completely miss what it means. Because if I check my heart, Rocky Peak, often when I say that, Jesus, your will be done as long as it makes sense to me. Jesus, your will be done as long as I get what I want and what is good. And often, it is good. But what John is telling us, and remember, John is writing from experience. John is saying very openly, as someone who was there and didn't get it either, Caiaphas has no idea the magnitude of what he is saying. He is absolutely right in his words, and he is completely missing the mark in its meaning. To him, the most important thing was one nation, one government, one point in history. What John is saying is what Jesus was up to was to save all nations, to save all people for all time. And again, we have to take a step back and remember that the will and goodness of God is not always going to make sense, but we are reminded over and over again that God is always at work for a greater good, even in the midst of significant loss and suffering. Do you think that any follower of Jesus watching him nailed, suffering, and dying on a cross in that moment looked at that and went, this is good. This is the greatest act that could ever happen to us for all of eternity. And so what John is reminding us by telling us that God is at work for something bigger is that he's saying, Christ follower, the beautiful and scary thing is to experience God's epic vision for your life. At times, is it gonna require you to let go of what makes sense to you? 
let go of what makes sense to you because God is at work in a way that is bigger than we could possibly imagine. And so as we continue in verse 53, so from that day on, would you underline or highlight that phrase, from that day on, because that's marking a turning point in this gospel. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, this is the third Passover indicated in John, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it to him so that they might arrest him. And so what we have now is now we have, a show, we have this proof that a showdown is coming. You know, I shared last night how as a kid, I grew up watching boxing with my father. My dad enjoyed boxing. And if you think about those posters for a heavyweight main event, they were always promoting that a showdown is coming. You wanna tune in, a showdown is coming. And so this showdown is the talk of the town. The people know that this man named Jesus is doing these extraordinary things. Not all believe, but definitely there's a curiosity going on. They also know that the religious leaders want him arrested, that the religious leaders want to bring them to the Romans for execution, which they didn't have the authority to do, only Rome did. They know that there is a showdown coming. But when I titled this message, The Coming Showdown, I'm not specifically talking about Jesus and the religious leaders. Rocky Peak, I'm talking about us. Because again, that fear is relatable, right? And what do we see in the religious leaders? That the fear minimized God. The fear distorted God. And there are times in our life, there are regular times, Rocky Peak, in which the Lord will call us into a showdown with him, in which the Lord will challenge what it is we want, in which the Lord will challenge our desires. The Lord will challenge what makes sense. And I've said it before, not simply for the sake of rattling your cage, because the Lord desires more out of your hearts. The more desi Lord desires more in your life. And that is going to happen by speaking truth into the root and source of the fear we hold in our hearts. And so that's our passage, Rocky Peak. And so in the time that we have left, there are no cheap. I often say we're gonna unpack a couple truths, but for this weekend, I think a better word is wrestle. There's a couple truths that we need to wrestle with. And again, one of the beautiful things about the Lord is that he invites us to wrestle with him. He invites us to a place of authenticity. He's inviting us to go before him and to say, Jesus, I'm afraid. Jesus, I'm afraid for my family. Jesus, I'm afraid for me. 
Jesus, I'm afraid for our state. I'm afraid for our nation. I'm afraid for our world. I'm afraid for being a Christ follower. Whatever it is, the Lord is inviting us to that because while we are on this side of heaven, there is nothing that will completely eliminate fear. And so what we see from the end of John chapter 11 is that fear can either be a danger or fear can be an opportunity that leads us to experience a much bigger Jesus. And we're gonna wrestle with those two sides this morning. So there in your note sheet, you got a section titled The Root of the Showdown, and your first fill-in is this. Fear can be used to distort Jesus. Fear can be used to distort Jesus. And the reason why I selected that language specifically is to remind us that this is spiritual warfare. That we have an enemy who is very real, who is on the prowl to destroy our relationship with the Lord, to lead us away from truth. And when it comes to this very specific fear, this is a key battlefield. And again, Rocky Peak, hear me very, very clearly. The enemy is not God. The enemy does not have the power and authority that God has. The enemy has been defeated by the resurrection of Jesus. The enemy will be condemned at the end of all things. So the enemy does not have the power and authority of God. But what the enemy is, is a brilliant strategist. He's a brilliant strategist. And though this specific fear that we all face multiple times in our lives, that many of you are facing right now, this fear that comes when God does not make sense is a key opportunity for the enemy to move in to begin an attempt to distort how big our Jesus is. Because often what I've encountered in my own life is that the strategy of the enemy is not to get us to initially outright reject Jesus, but to distort how we see Jesus so that we end up following a false Jesus because all false gods lead to the same place, death and away from life. But he knows that all he has to do is distort that image about 15 degrees so that there are some similarities, but you're still moving away and away and away, and it becomes a more slow and a much more painful and destructive attack. And again, it is a very real place. Rocky Peak, think of where you are emotionally. Some of you, again, right now, when God's way doesn't make sense. I mentioned before, many of you have been there in the hospital waiting room or in the hospital beds. Many of you have been there watching the news when something was reported and your heart sank. Many of you have, have cried as you've read the newspaper in the morning. Many of you have experienced the devastation that one conversation brings with family, with friends, with your church. Many of you have been there as you've experienced the hardships of being laid off or not knowing where the next paycheck is coming from. Many of you have gone before the Lord, are going before the Lord, and have asked and have pleaded and have wondered, God, you answered this other person. God, do you not see what's going on? God, do you not want to move? What is happening? 
And many of you have experienced that very real fear. As my friend Tim, who's also one of our pastors, put it to me this week, of that fear that comes when you realize, what if God's will is different than my will? And that's a very real place of fear. Rocket Peak, I've shared openly with you in the past that fear has often been, it often is a thorn in my side. Fear is often a place where I find myself wrestling with our beautiful Jesus because I despise mystery. I value control because I feel that that leads me to safety. And so I have plans on top of plans on top of plans. I have savings accounts for savings accounts for savings accounts. I have contingencies and emergency responses and kits and everything ready to go. Ever since I was a kid, I have despised surprise parties. And if I sense that there is one, you better believe I am not going inside that house. And why do I do this? Because somehow I believe that if I can control my destiny, everything will be okay. And what the Lord is calling me is beautiful and scary at the same time. Dre, Rocky Peak, let go. And sometimes I sit there and go, but how it, it hurts so much. And I'm reminded of all of those examples I gave, the loss, the heartache, the tears, the anger, the hospitals, the diseases, the layoffs, the, the politicians, whatever it may be, I'm reminded through the beautiful word of God that when it comes to all of those fears, when it comes to all of those pains, when it comes to all that suffering, when it comes to all of that loss, I am never alone, that our precious Jesus has entered into it, but not only has Jesus entered into it, our Jesus has endured it. Our Jesus has nailed it to the cross. Our Jesus is reminding us that I am not numb to it. I have not forgotten it. I will redeem it. I am working towards it. But what he is reminding us is that I need you to trust that I am at work to do something greater. Rocky Peak, truly, as I share my heart for many, many years, I have believed that the antidote to my fears was answers. Just tell me the answer, God. Just tell me what you're doing. Even if it's years away, just give me a heads up that it's gonna work out. Just tell me that it's gonna be okay. And the beautiful truth, the bigger truth, just as John talks about in this gospel, is that the antidote to my fear is not the answers to my question, but the antidote to my fear is a greater experience of the presence of Jesus in my life. See there in your note sheet, from Joshua chapter one, we're gonna spend some time in our life group study this week in this passage. The Lord says to Joshua, be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. 
Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And as we read that together, there is significant beauty in that. But as I'm often apt to do, there is even more beauty when we understand a little bit more of the context. The Lord is speaking to Joshua, the leader that will lead Israel after Moses. Can you think of any more intimidating jobs to step into than taking the role after the Red Sea guy? After the Ten Commandments guy? To be like, now I'm the next one. But not only that, Joshua is leading a nation that their fears have distorted their image of God. That what happened in the wilderness was not part of their plan, was not what they expected. Hurt, it brought fear to them. They distorted their view. They would say, man, it was better being a slave in Egypt than it is being here. And do you notice what the Lord speaks directly into those fears? He does not give them an answer as to what they're gonna expect. But instead, he says success, hope, and power is in you choosing to focus on me. And I am here. And so the danger is that fear can distort Jesus, but that leads us to the second fill and the opportunity is that fear can lead us to a bigger Jesus. Fear can lead us to a bigger Jesus. You know how when you have kids, you tell them not to play with matches? We're going to see how this goes this morning, Rocky Peak. But when, you get a, when you're a kid and you're told that, you don't fully understand. But when you get older, you start to realize why you're told that. Is that even a little bit of fire is incredibly destructive. And one of the things that makes it so destructive is how quickly it spreads it gets really, really hard to control, doesn't it? And I feel like this is a perfect metaphor for the type of fear we're talking about. That that fear, when Jesus doesn't make sense, can spread quickly into all areas and can become incredibly destructive. And I don't know about you, but when I'm in those times in life, I would pay any amount of money to be able to blow it out and be done with it but it's not that easy, is it? But then the interesting thing about fire is that it's a paradox. It can be incredibly destructive, but yet there's a beauty to it. Yet there's a purpose in the dark. It can illuminate. In fact, fire can refine and make something better, stronger, more pure. And when we turn to scripture, we see it talk about these two aspects of fire. We see it talking about fire being destructive and dangerous, but we also in scripture see fire being an opportunity to refine us. And so as I mentioned, if we are on this side of heaven and we will not be free from our fears completely until the Lord takes us home, then what do we do about it? Well, we have the opportunity through the power of God in us to not allow the fear to distort how we view Jesus, but to drive us to and experience a bigger Jesus in our lives. See, that is why Rocky Peak, it is so vital 
that as Christ followers, we are having one-on-one regular time with Jesus because this one-on-one regular time, whether you call it devotional, whether you call it morning time, whatever you choose to name it, but this regular one-on-one time between you and Jesus is not meant to always be polished, Pollyanna, the sun is shining and everything is good. It is meant for you to be raw. It is meant for you to be honest. It is meant for you to play your cards on the table. It is meant for you to bring your doubts, your anger, your frustrations, your fears before the presence of Jesus. And it is an opportunity to experience more, the bigger, and to have that speak directly into your hearts. The Bible is full of many examples of this, but there's two from the Old Testament that always jump out to me. The first is Job. And if you think of the pain, you think of the hardship, and what we see in Job's account is we see a broken, hurt individual who is confused, who is angry, who is terrified, who is sobbing and in deep sorrow. But what do we see is that he is doing all of that before the Lord. And at the end of Job's book, the Lord makes his presence known. And what does the Lord not do? Give Job the answers. But what he does do is he reminds Job, I'm with you. I'm bigger and I'm with you. The second person I think of is the prophet Habakkuk, one of our minor prophets in the Old Testament. And again, think about that. He's a prophet. He's a servant, he's a man of God, and it's a simple three-chapter book, but as his book opens, Habakkuk is angry. He's angry with the people of Israel who are walking away from God, who are abandoning their first love, who are abandoning their faith. He's angry at God. He's saying, God, do something. You need to intervene. You need to stop what your people are doing. And God's response is, it's gonna get worse. But he also says, If I told you what I was doing, and this is my paraphrase, there is no way your mind could comprehend it. So trust me because I'm right here. And so Rocky Peak, there is a lot in our life that is legitimately frightening and painful. But again, I don't minimize when I say it is an opportunity to go before the Lord with a new authenticity, to hear his voice and to be reminded that when I can't see past, that he is at work for something greater. There in your note sheet, I love this quote by Tim Keller, the religious leaders of the day expected a nice, easy to understand Messiah who could defeat the Roman power and lead Israel to political independence. A weak suffering, a crucified Messiah made no sense to them. Those looking at Jesus as he was dying on the cross had no idea that they were looking at the greatest act of salvation in history. Could the observance of the crucifixion clearly perceive the ways of God? No, even though they were looking right at a wonder of grace. And the final thing there in your note sheet, It's helpful for us to spend time before the Lord and be honest about what's deep in our hearts. By the power of God in us, we examine the root and bring it to Jesus and flow scripture over it and through it. 
we immerse ourselves in the goodness and greatness of God and let Jesus shine his light on that root. And this is our opportunity, Rocky Peak. And so with that being said, I wanna give us as a church an opportunity to be able to do that collectively together. So I'm gonna invite the band to come on out and they're gonna lead us in a time of worship. And if you're here to be baptized, it's during the song of worship that you're gonna wanna come and take your place. But specifically, we're gonna sing a song we've sung before declaring how Jesus is bigger, how Christ be magnified, how all creation cries out, how when we suffer, we know that you are there with us. Let this be a time in which we declare courage, Rocky Peak, which is not the absence of faith fear, but it is the acknowledgement that the fearless one is here with us. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your courage. We thank you for your strength. We thank you that it's in that courage and in that strength that you call us to be authentic and raw with you. We thank you that we can come before you and cry and yell and doubt and wonder and be confused. We thank you that doesn't shake you, that as a perfect, gentle father, you hear us, you encourage us, you share our sorrows, but we thank you that you are the only one that can actually do something about it. And so as your beautiful church, here we are to say, we're afraid, but we declare that you are not. We pray that as we go into this week that many of us might need to wrestle, have a showdown, and while that may bring up your feelings of nervousness, it also brings up an excitement and a hope because when we lay our heart bare to you is when you speak directly into the root and you bring a comfort, a power, and a joy we, couldn't, we could have never imagined before. And so as we sing this song, as we declare who you really are, let this be from the depths of our souls and it is in your name to the fearless King Jesus. We all said, amen.